almost. So, and it's in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. So I, by Ecclesiastes and Job, that kind of section. Uh, so I invite you to have a Bible with you. And so we're studying this. We're going to go through the whole book for eight weeks here or seven more. And um, not verse by verse. It's a poem. So it's as part of the wisdom literature. It's written not to be read kind of linearly, but kind of uh, read as these meta themes. And so we're going to look at one of those themes today. But before we dive in, let's just take a moment to pray together. God, thanks for uh, the opportunity we have to enter into your word together. Um, thanks that your word is alive and true for our lives. So meet us where we're at today, God. Many of us come after uh, weeks uh, that have been difficult, um, where we faced uh, either hardship in our own lives or in the lives of those we love, um, or we face challenges at work or in our family. Um, so God, would you encourage those of us in the room who are facing challenge? God, uh, some of us are just feeling uplifted right now. Uh, we, we thank you for worship. We thank you for community. And so we invite you to challenge us now. And God, we, we just come around your word right now and we, just, we, we give you permission to speak. Your word is life. Your word is truth. So thank you that your word speaks this morning to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, let me get to my notes here. Um, like I said, for the next eight weeks, we're going to be in this book, The Song of Solomon, Song of Songs in some of your Bibles, I think. It just depends on the translation you're reading. And uh, it's unique because it really, as a book, it speaks toward this idea of relationships. So it's kind of the relationship book in the Bible, and maybe you have a different experience of this book. Uh, it's not often, in fact, Richard shared with our teaching teams, we have a group of six uh, teaching pastors at Bethany and shared that in the 30 years of ministry and preaching, he's never preached this book. Uh, I've found very few pastors around the country that have preached the book. Uh, there was a season in the history of the church where this book was not allowed to be read publicly. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating because as a book in the Bible, it, it speaks to probably one of the most important topics you can imagine, which is relationships, both intimate relationships. So it's a poem, a love poem about intimate relationship between a man and a woman. We're going to get into that in the coming weeks. Also non-intimate relationships. And ultimately, the way we're looking, th the lens we're looking through is our, in our relationship with God. So each of us has a relationship with God. Some of us on different points in that journey, but we're all here today saying, hey God, I want to learn a little more about you and be in relationship with you in some way. Head, heart, body, soul, spirit. And so there's a lot we can learn through this book about relationship. It doesn't matter if you're married or single or if you're gay or straight or if you're young or old, it just doesn't matter. This book is here for you to, to learn about relationship. So that said, as we begin, uh, the themes that we find here in chapter 1 of Song of Solomon um, and really the teaching in this, in this first chapter are, are kind of profoundly rooted in this, this meta theme of identity. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning is identity because identity really informs relationship. Uh, so to that end, a couple weeks ago, I read this article in the New York Times. I read the New York Times a lot. We lived on the East Coast, so it kind of became my, my newspaper. I do read the Seattle Times, but I don't, I just like the New York Times. So I, sorry if I quote it too much. But there was this article I found a couple weeks ago called DNA Tests and Sometimes Surprising Results. Um, and 
How many of you have taken one of these DNA tests? Like you've taken one and a few of you have? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. There's this, this article by this woman named Anita Foman. She's a uh, communications professor at um, Westchester University in Pennsylvania. And she administers this DNA test to her students in her, one of her classes every year. She has for the last decade as a way of understanding the intersection of race and identity. And so uh, she does this by first asking them to write down on a piece of paper or kind of draw a pie chart and then illustrate on this pie chart the expected, sorry about those windows, the expected results of their DNA makeup or their kind of ethnic and racial makeup, how they define themselves, where they've come from over the generations. So draw this pie chart and then they take the test and, uh, and, the, and, and then they discover their actual racial ethnic makeup. And so she writes in this article that it's been fascinating over this last decade to explore the very often disparate feelings that students express between how they define themselves before the test and then how they, what they discover to be true about themselves after they take the test. At times, a sense of joy, like, wow, I didn't know that. It was in my life, my family's story. Other times, a deep sense of shock. Like, there was this one story I read in the article that says, what are you, you're messing with me. Stop messing with me. I don't want to know this about myself. And then she writes this in her, in her article. She says, it took me 10 years before I tested myself. And what I found both confirmed and shook me to the core. My background, she's African-American, included African heritage from both Ghana and the Gold Coast, or from the Gold Coast, both Ghana and Nigeria, intermingled with British and Scandinavian ancestors. And then I have a smattering of Asian genes and as many North Americans, some Native American heritage. So today, she says, I look at faces, even my own, with a new recognition. Uh, <laughs> I love that. With an, you look at your own face in the, in the mirror and you, with a new recognition, like you hadn't seen something about yourself before. I see that people that regularly share narratives that miss something. I see that people regularly share narratives that, that uh, miss something their physical features suggest. There's something in you that your physical features only suggests, but there's something deep within you, she's, she's saying. And sometimes we find uh, ancestry that we would not have imagined in our, in our story. And it stirs up conversations with myself and with others, complicated and jagged conversations, she says, but also merciful conversations about identity. And so many of us can identify with Foman's insights. So you've taken this, one of these tests or you've been on Answers.com or whatever, uh, my, my dad did that a while back and discovered that our last name, Brace, has p- two potential, um, if you know me, you'll be able to figure this out, but two potential sort of roots. There's Robert the Bruce. <laughs> That's the one I like, you know, from that movie, The Braveheart. And they changed their name when they became anglicized after they were exiled from Scotland. Then there's Brace, which is in England, um, they often shoemaker those kinds of last names. It's what you did. So braces are belts. So like we're belt makers. So you know me, <laughs> probably that other one, but Robert the Bruce, that's me. So um, but we went on Ancestry, Ancestry.com and figured that out. You talk to older relatives. You hear the stories about where they're from and about your family history. And it, it seems to be this sort of universal human experience, unique among humans. I mean, no other, no other animals do this, right? They don't talk to each other about, like, where are you from? Like, where did you guys come from? What continent? And, and we, we love to dive deep into the waters of identity. But as Fulman suggests, it it's can be a jagged and very difficult uh, dive when you start to get down there, and, so, and very merciful as well. So having said that, Song of Solomon chapter 1 
remember, Song of Solomon is all about relationships. It's sort of like a theological DNA test. It's a little bit like that. Uh, it's, this, it's foundational to the whole book, and it kind of sets the table for the rest of our study by extending these two pivotal um, kind of identity invitations to us with a lot of related, sometimes jagged, but also merciful applications for our lives, okay? So just a little warning to you. Like I said, they're jagged and merciful. There's going to be some things I share this morning that may make you feel uncomfortable. And there's going to hopefully be some things that really encourage you. So kind of strap yourself into your seat, okay? Uh, So the first invitation, there's going to be two of them. The first one is going to be rest in the confidence of who you are. We're going to really focus in on one verse. I'd, I'd argue it's kind of the linchpin of this entire book. Verse 5. And then we're going to look at uh, the second invitation, which is live for the purpose for which you were created. Okay? So the first invitation. This is the invitation. To rest in the confidence of who you are. And verse 5 is this. Dark am I, yet lovely. Now, I don't know what your translation says, the one that you have in your Bible that's in front of you. Most translations read this way. New American Standard Bible, which we often joke is the Bethany Standard Translation. (laughs) I am black, but lovely. English Standard Version, I am very dark, but lovely. Old King James, I am black, but comely. Now, I would love to spend some time uh, unpacking this phrase with you, because like I said, it's, it's really the key to this chapter. And the reason that is, is all of those translations, every one of them, is rooted in this very particular interpretation of this surrounding context of the story. If you read this whole chapter and this narrator's voice, this woman, so in verse 6, uh, second half of verse 6, she, we discover that she's been, this woman's brothers have forced her out into these fields to work. So she's kind of like a day laborer. Her, she's like David or, or Joseph, you know, their, her, their brothers his, it just forced them out to work. David as a shepherd and Joseph into this, you know, just hard labor and then enslavement. Um, they've abused her. They've forced her into this field work. They've taken advantage of their position over her as, as men in that culture, as older siblings, you can imagine. And because of this, as you read the story, uh, her skin's been exposed to the kind of harsh daylight of the Middle Eastern sun, and it's grown darker. Same for today for people who work outside, right? If you're in construction or you're in field work or whatever you do, except in those days that dark skin unlike today, we're all hoping for darker skin probably right now, uh, is a symbol of shame. What it means is that this person and this woman in this instance was a lower class citizen. So she's a peasant. She's a laborer. Uh, Women didn't do this kind of work. Only the lowest of the low. And the skin color would have shown that. Now this is an interpretive lens, like I said, and to pardon the pun, that colors the entire story. Um, it's the lens through which, verse 6, when she says, O daughters of Jerusalem, don't look at me and gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun looked upon me. Like when she says that, it, you can, if you read it through this lens, it kind of carries a hint of shame and disgrace with it, doesn't it? Like she seems to be saying, don't judge me on the basis of my class, of my work, of my poverty, of my destitute position in life. Um, don't look down upon me because I've been ill-treated by my brothers. Instead, look deep within my story. There's, look beyond my status in life. Look deeper in, you'll find beauty there. Deep within, right? Don't judge me. I'm like you, is kind of what you could hear her saying. Now, that's one way of understanding this passage, just one. There's another way, though, that I want to suggest to you, and this is where I might provoke you a little bit. So Ian Provane, he's a commentator 
on the Song of Solomon. We're using him pretty, uh, we're using him a lot for this study. He's a professor and scholar at Regent College in Vancouver, and he has this very provocative commentary, so I'd invite you to read it. It's, it's scholarly, but also accessible for kind of the common person, so you don't have to have Greek or Hebrew or any of that stuff. And in this verse, on this verse, verse 5, I'm black but lovely, he has a really interesting footnote. I had to like dig to the back of the book to find it, and that's interesting in and of itself. Here's the footnote. It's not easy to understand why the NIV, the translation that we heard from, translates the first line of verse 5 as dark yet lovely, unless it's simply that the translators are so burdened by the weight of tradition and their assumptions, they could not find any alternative plausible. There is nothing, he is very, very uh, clear here, there's nothing in this passage itself that implies that the staring of the other women, verse 6, don't look at me, daughters of Jerusalem, that the staring is anything other than the result of interest and fascination. And there's therefore no reason to assume that, there, that, that the speaker or the author's mind would doubt the darkness of her, or the beauty of her darkness, that it was perf- those two were perfectly compatible. So he says we should translate the line this way, I am dark and lovely, which is actually how only one English translation translates it, the New Revised Standard. I'm dark and lovely. I'm black and beautiful. And that's a nuance. You might go, so what? You know? But it really jives as you read the story now through that lens with what the man in the story says to her. So verse 8, you skip forward. He says, oh, most beautiful of women. Notice he doesn't qualify that. He doesn't say, well, despite your dark skin, you're beautiful. I know, you know, I know that's a sign of shame, but you're beautiful anyway. He doesn't say, even though you're a concubine, you know, I find you beautiful. He doesn't say, I find deep inward beauty within you. <laughs> he says, you are be- most beautiful among women, unqualified. I find you beauty, I find this beauty in you that's expressive, that's physical, in your skin color. She's black and beautiful. And like I said, it's a small translation decision between an and and a, and a but, or a yet and an and, but it has had huge implications, huge implications in our culture. So uh, in her debut novel, uh, Toni Morrison, this is her first novel ever. Who's read some Toni Morrison in your life? Most of us read that in college for like, if you went to liberal arts school. Um, She wrote her debut novel, 1970, was The Bluest Eye. And she interestingly wrote another novel called Song of Solomon. Uh, But in The Bluest Eye, she depicts the effects of the legacy of 19th century racism on black people in the United States. And so she tells of this story of this, this girl named Pecola Breedlove, who's the daughter of a very poor black family in the South. And she has internal, so internalized white standards of beauty that uh, she eventually goes crazy in the story. And, and her fervent wish in the book is to have blue eyes. Uh, she had kind of heard uh, Little Orphan Annie stories, and she wanted those blue eyes. And, and so it's become, it's, it actually became her wish to escape her poverty, the unloving racist culture she lives in. Um, She believes that if she just had blue eyes, her life would be transformed. And that she could escape, she'd be free. Black yet beautiful. Are you with me? And so it's fascinating commentary on race and beauty, but also very provocative. Listen to this. Uh, When it was published, and today, the uh, blue eyes, 
in the blue side, is, is frequently in the top 10 of the ALA's m- most challenged books. These are books that are trying to be banned from libraries and schools. Top 10. In 2006, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was fifth on that list. I'm sure this is in 1970. In 2013, it was fourth, <laughs> kind of inching its way up. Up there with the bluest eye is I Know Why the Cagey Bird Sings by Maya Angelou at number six. Number 17, The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Number 26, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Now, interestingly, I did some research on this. The other books in the mix with these, listen to this. Number one on that list, can anybody guess? Harry Potter. Number 13, Captain Underpants. I'm not kidding. Number 22, The Gossip Girl series. Now, I read that, and I wondered, what? How can Captain Underpants even sit alongside Bluest Eye and Beloved on a list that we, we avert our eyes from? Um, why is that? Let me, well, let me tell you why, I think. Morrison and Alice Walker and Maya Angelou, if you know their, their writing, are challenging us as readers to attend to the great danger of sameness. Uh, as well as the profound beauty and difference. There is profound beauty and difference. Profound beauty. And it's oftentimes something we don't want to look at. So in another book I've been working through uh, this last year, I was checking with somebody on the way in like it was my Bible, not in God's name. It's not a Bible. Don't worry. Um, but it's by this guy named uh, Jonathan Sachs. He's the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. He's written a couple books I've read. Uh, one in response to September 11th called The Dignity of Difference. So he's trying to understand what happened that day. This one, not in God's name, confronting religious violence in response to the rise of ISIS. And he's seen as a, as a religious leader in our world. He's kind of grappling with this idea of religious extremism. So he's, he's writing a response to it. Uh, and he's kind of figure, trying to figure out, why are peeping, people being killed in God's name today? In the God of the name of peace, in the God of the name of love, in the God of the name of mercy, how can people who believe in that God kill other people? makes no sense to him. And then he's attempting in this book to rebuke that violence because they're not, they should never coexist. The violence in God's name and just the beauty of who God is. So he wrote this book as a first step of making this argument. And he, he, uh, he tells this really interesting anecdote in there. He says, diversity is what gives color and texture to life, to our life on earth, uh, art, architecture, music, stories, celebrations, food, drink, dance. All of these are particular. None of them is abstract an abstract universal. And he tells this anecdote that the late Sidney Morgenbesser, who's a philosophy professor at Columbia University, once took a bunch of his students out to a restaurant to prove this point. And he ordered soup. And the waiter said, which soup? And, the, and he's, he's like, chicken, carrot, or borscht? And uh, <laughs> Morgenbesser said, none. Just soup. And then the waiter said, you can't just order soup. We have carrot, chicken, or borscht. And he said, no, I'll just have soup today. And then uh, <laughs> Sachs goes on and says, well, the waiter, not being a philosopher, gave up and walked away. And Morgan Mesher had proved his point to his students that you can't just drink soup in the abstract. You can't just speak a language that's universal. You can't have an identity that says, I'm just a human being. Some ancient Greeks thought that, and they were wrong. And that's why they didn't regard non-Greeks as fully human, if you read any Plato or Aristotle. And then he goes on and says, this identity is plural, and that constitutes the inescapable diversity of humankind. Then he goes on to wrestle with this question. How do we avoid the violence that comes when different groups clash? 
And the answer proposed by the Bible is that something transcends our difference. That something is God and that he set his image in each and every one of us in the room. That's why every life is sacred, every life in the universe. The unity of God asks us to respect the stranger, to love the outsider, to embrace the alien, because even though he or she is not in our image, their ethnicity, their faith, their culture is not ours, they are in God's image. And so uh, you, you put this together. What Toni Morrison and Jonathan Sachs and I think the Song of Solomon are inviting us to recognize is this profound power and beauty and difference. Um, that this woman's blackness in this story is not a distraction to be overcome. It's not a limitation. It's not a weakness. Uh, instead, it's this powerful and potent aspect of God's design. It's His image revealed to the people around her. As Sack says, the image of God on display. Not a but, not a yet, but an and. Black and beautiful. A gift and a symbol of beauty and strength. So what this means for us, we have task. We have a task as interpreters. We're all trying to interpret Scripture together. As readers of the Bible, whenever you read the Bible, you're trying to interpret it, okay? You have a task. We have a task to read this kind of a story very attentively and to read the conjunctions responsibly. It makes a big difference if it's a but or an and. And to take it seriously and to open yourself to the learning from that decision and then celebrate when you discover the other. Uh, the rich variety of people right here that God's gathered in this room. I mean, we may not realize that, that God has gathered a rich variety of people. If you were just to go around right now, if I just took the time and had you share stories, every person shares your story of where you're from, who you are, what's made you you today, uh, I, there would not be a dry in the room. And, and so we, not, we, we need not, we should not be so blind. I've been told not to should on people, but I'm going to right now. We should not be so blind to who the people that God has brought into our community. Uh, whether those differences that we have here we can see, so racial ethnic differences, or ones that are unseen, like our socioeconomic differences, or our sexual orientation, or our educational attainment, or our theological convictions, or our politics, uh, or our family histories. And, and all that, how that feeds into us becoming a family of faith on mission. In this woman's declaration, the Bible is inviting us to celebrate difference. That's what I think black and beautiful is all about. Calling us to be a community forged by the beauty and dignity of difference. So that's the first invitation, to rest in this confidence that we are very different from each other and yet beautiful at the same time. That's who we are, black and beautiful. Different and yet called to the same purpose. So here's the second invitation. We're invited to live for the purpose, collectively as well as individually. Live for the purpose for which we've been created. One great purpose. We all have one great purpose. Look at the first chapter. If you just read through it, I know we didn't have it on the screen, but there's this rich texture of ways in which the characters declare their love for each other. Verse 2. Let, me kiss, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. Is love to you more delightful than wine? A lot of us love wine. Is the love of another more delightful than that? Verse 9 and 10, I liken you, my darling, uh, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings and your neck with 
jewels. Your, verse 13, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. It's evocative. Verse 14, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Verse 15, my, my, how beautiful you are, my darling. Verse 16, how handsome you are, my beloved. It just goes on and on and on. This is an unabashed love poem. Like some of us are like, eh, I love poems, right? <laughs> it's okay, someday when you're in college. There's a, a dialogue and a, and a richness and a beauty of love. It reminds me of that place in the Gospels where Jesus in, in Mark 12, Matthew 22, remember he, this teacher of the law, pastor, goes up to him and with this age-old question, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Amongst the 613 commandments we have in our law, they had a lot. What's the, which one stands out to you, Jesus, as the most significant? Sort of a way of testing Jesus to see if he read his law. It's a lot of law to read, a lot of tax code, you know, a lot of, to memorize. Like, did Jesus know it? Could he debate it? Remember what Jesus says? It's love that forms the basis for everything. Uh, all law, all life, and specifically he says the love of God, but not just the love of God. Here's the twist. Jesus attaches a second great command to the first. So the love of God, they understood. That was undebatable. He adds the second command. It says the second is like it. In fact, the word he uses for like, remember this, the greatest command, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And the second is like it. This word for like is the, word, the Greek word homoios, where we get homo- homogenous, homonym. It's the, it's, they're the same. They correspond to each other. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, so lo- love God. We all kind of get that, right? Like uh, you came to church today. You, you read your Bible. Go to Bible study. You do your morning devotions. Uh, you pray. Like check. Love God. I got that down, right? Maybe not perfectly, but you're doing it. Love neighbor. We did serve day. Check, right? Loving neighbor. You know, uh, that neighbor's dog poops on your lawn. You don't yell at them. You're loving your neighbors, okay? I'm being facetious, but, but how about loving yourself? How's that going for you? Like, really, how's that going for you? I mean, some of you are like, what does it even mean? Is this like, you know, Stuart Smalley, Saturday Night Live? Pardon me, this is a little dated, but look in the mirror and kind of go, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people love me, like me. You know, it's like, is that what Jesus is really talking about? If you know, if you Google Stuart Smalley, I know I just did, a couple of you get it, but uh, it's a little dated Saturday Night Live, but it's pretty funny, okay? Uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's self-focus. And we got a lot of self-focus going around today. Just go on your Instagram feed, you know, like me, love me. Uh, and th- that's not what Jesus is saying. That's a version of self-love. That's not Jesus' version of self-love. It's also not self-preservation or self-fulfillment that Jesus is talking about. That's the sort of self-love our world thinks about as self-love. Self-love, according to our culture, and the one we're steeped in is this. This deep longing to diminish pain and increase happiness. All of us in this room at some level are wanting to diminish pain and increase happiness. I mean, who wants more pain, right? Not a single one of you probably. And that's what we think of as self-love. You all want to be happy. I want to be happy. You know, you want meaningful, pleasant activity to fill your day up. You want some friends to spend some time with you. You want your life to count in some way, your work to matter. You want to make a difference. 
all of, all of us, according to the world, are, are attempting to love ourselves in that way. And those aren't bad things, but that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, instead, what I think Jesus is talking about is this. When he commands us to, he, he commands us to do this, to love ourselves. I think it's tied to this idea of beauty that I've already begun to unpack. Black and beautiful. Think of this for a moment with me. There's something in that declaration, I think, that reveals to, will reveal to us what it means to love yourself. So you've heard of the Black is Beautiful movement, right, from the 1970s? I saw this clip that kind of helped me understand that phrase from uh, this PBS series. I'm going to show you a clip from the PBS series, uh, The African Americans, by Henry Louis Gates Jr. Actually, he's, he's interviewing Questlove. Who knows who Questlove is? Okay, good. See, <laughs> he's the drummer for The Roots. So uh, he's being interviewed by Henry Louis Gates Jr. He's talking about um, this Black is Beautiful movement as it relates to that 1970s show, Soul Train. Okay? So watch this clip. It's only a minute. See if you can get it to work, Don. Self-love. Most important lesson taught in the show. Um, I love that clip when I heard it because uh, I think it's an important lesson for all of us to learn at a level. We don't know what it means to love ourselves. We're not comfortable even in our own skin. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. Um, Self-love, I think according to Quest Love, and I think Jesus is, he's in line with Jesus here. I don't know know if he's a Christian or not. Is actually the opposite of self-hatred. The opposite of self-hatred. It's it's beginning to see yourself in terms of that great psalm, Psalm 139. I'm beautifully, I am beautifully and wonderfully made. Me, not David, not somebody some other time, but me. I'm beautiful, I'm wonderful. It's beginning to to believe the truth of Genesis 1 and 2 for your life, that you, all of you, all of us, woman, man, black, white, Asian, Latino, gay, straight, young, old, married, single, all of us in this room are made in the image of God. Every one of us. And because we're made in God's image, we're good. And not good in this sense, like perfect. I'm not talking about that. That's not what that word means in the Bible. Good in this sense that we are beautiful. That's what the word good, when you see it in the Bible, means. Beautiful. That's all it means. You're made in God's image. That's what Questlove is getting at. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's what Song of Solomon is getting at. This powerful, powerful claim that love is not fundamentally something we give or we get, like a transaction. It's, it's, it's something that we nurture and grow. This is something I read in one of Brene Brown's books once, that you nurture, grow love. It can only be cultivated between people when it exists within them. Love has to exist within you to then cultivate it between people. That everything about love, our ability to give and receive love, uh, to enter into the life of love for which we're called, we're all called to that, everything hinges on our ability to love ourselves well. Love God, love neighbor, as, and as, as you experience the love of God deep within your life. This is a radical claim. And like I said, with massive implications, uh, both with respect to race and reconciliation, which I've already talked about, for how we parent our children, uh, for how we do our daily work that you've been called to, for how you relate to your neighbors, uh, for how you write code, for how you uh, fundraise, 
probably provide care if you're a healthcare worker. There are so many implications to this. The amount of love that we're able to extend is directly related to the amount of love that's penetrated the core of our lives. You can't give more love than you've received. It doesn't work that way in God's economy. And so Henry Nouwen, one of these guys that, um, I have the book down there, but actually I've written down here too. This book that he wrote called The Life of the Beloved, I think I've quoted this before a couple times, but it's had a huge impact. Somebody gave me this, this exact copy years ago when I was going through a pretty dark season. And huge impact on this, on my life as I meditated on this idea of being the beloved. And he writes this in the book. He says, over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, power, but self-rejection. Greatest trap in our lives is self-rejection. He says that success, popularity, and power can indeed be present as a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the, the way that they're part of a much larger temptation to reject ourselves. He says, when we come to believe the voices that call us worthless, unlovable, then success and popularity and power are just easily perceived as attractive solutions to, those, to that. The real trap, self-rejection, is, is there. He says, I'm constantly surprised at how quickly I get, I get caught by this temptation. As soon as someone accuses me and criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, I'm left alone, I'm abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves it. I'm worthless. I'm nobody. Uh, instead of kind of looking around and trying to figure out what's going on, I deserve to be pushed aside and forgotten and abandoned. And man, <laughs> I can identify with this illustration he uses. On Friday, I was at a school event. Uh, Elizabeth and I were at a school event for our son Elliot, and um, there was, it's called Fiesta Latina. He goes to John Stanford International School, so it was like a Latin American thing. And they had these piñatas. By the way, if you ever organize, if you're on a PTA, a school event, don't get piñatas. Worst idea ever. <clears throat> Sorry. It was like a total disaster. But he's there in this line, and Elliot, if you know him, he looks a lot older than he is. He's tall. And uh, he's in this line. Watch, I'm sitting back watching him work his way to the front of the line. And this parent who didn't know him, said, hey, this is just for the little kids. And so he went to the back of the line and worked his way to the front. He did this three times. And then he just ran to this corner. He didn't know I was watching. And just it was a heap of tears. I'm like, he's in the midst of all these kids. He didn't care what they think, think about a you know, first grader crying. So I just grabbed him. And I kind of held him in the midst of this crowd. And I just said, hey, man, I love you so much. Um, and it was interesting because in that moment, um, I was kind of feeling this, it was kind of this moment for us because I was feeling the same thing. I didn't know, I don't know anybody at Elliott School because we don't live in the same neighborhood. And, and so I was feeling this kind of sense of loneliness in that space and isolation and kind of like maybe it's something I'd done, you know. Um, maybe, I, maybe I'm unlovable too, you know. And it was just this wet mess on Friday evening sitting in the playground at John Stanford. You didn't want to be there, but kind of this self-rejection moment, you know? The greatest trap you can fall into. The greatest trap. <laughs> and then now one goes on, by the way, in this book, and he says, because not all of us struggle with that. I'm up here crying, you're like, ooh, awkward. He says this, maybe you think that you're more tempted by arrogance than self-rejection. Listen to this, though. Isn't arrogance just the other flip side of the coin? Isn't arrogance just putting yourself on a pedestal to avoid being seen as yourself? Isn't arrogance 
or pride, just another way of dealing with the feelings of worthlessness. Uh, Self-rejection and arrogance pull us out, he says, of the common reality of existence and make us, that make us gentle human people. I know too well, he says this, that beneath my arrogance there lies self-doubt, just as a great amount of pride is hidden by self-rejection. So inflated, deflated, doesn't matter. Don't lose truth. Don't lose touch with this reality. And here's the reality, his punchline. Self-rejection, whether it manifests as pride or arrogance or low self-esteem, self-esteem and self-hatred, is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of your life because it contrasts, contrasts the sacred voice of the one that calls you beloved. Being the beloved, now one writes, expresses the core truth of your existence. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of who you are. That's why God calls Jesus his beloved son. It's core to who he is. So let me, think, let me ask you this. What do you think about when you look at yourself in the mirror? Maybe you don't, but do you see failure? I mean, do you see rejection like I, I felt on Friday? Do you see tired? Do you see weak? Do you see a lack of confidence as you head out the door for work? Do you see fear and inadequacy? Uh, I want to, whatever you see or are beginning to see as you really look into your eyes, I want to invite you to look again. Maybe the next time you look in the mirror. But kind of look through this first chapter of Song of Solomon. Look at all the language of love. Look at all these terms of endearment. They're for you. How beautiful you are, my beloved. How handsome you are, my darling. How charming. Like, think of receiving that for yourself. Uh, putting yourself, male, man and woman here, into the story, receiving that for you. Uh, Richard did this last week. If you watched the sermon or you were with us, he went around the room and just looked at people, though he was on the screen, and said, hey, darling, you're my darling. You're God's darling. He did that. And I talked to a few guys this week, and it really made them squirm because we don't talk to each other that way. Uh, but the Bible talks to you that way. Jesus insists on talking to you that way. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You know, another one of my spiritual heroes, Brendan Manning, has this great line somewhere. It goes something like this. The only question, the only question that you or I are ever going to be asked by the King of Heaven is this. Did you believe that you were loved? It's not going to be some big test, like an SAT test in heaven. He's going to ask us one thing, and he asks you every day, do you believe it? Your love, that I waited for you every moment of every day to be with you, that I long for you, that I long to hear your voice. Do you believe that, that you're loved and lovable, <laughs> lovely? That's what this book, Song of Solomon, is all about. And when you begin believing that, when you begin resting in it, Everything else in the story will fall and fall into place. It'll make sense to you. All the tangles and knots of our life will come undone. Uh, and you just discover that Jesus calls you beautiful. Romans 8 uh, says this, and I'll finish with this, and I'll invite the worship team forward now. Uh, end of Romans 8. You know these passages. This is the message, though. And I, I picked out the message because it, it really kind of gets you out of your common way of hearing this. Listen to this. 
Jesus loves us. Maybe close your eyes and listen to this. Jesus loves us. Unconditionally, absolutely, Jesus loves you. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing, living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable. There's a lot of unthinkable things happening in your life right now. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that can get between Jesus' love for you and that unthinkable thing. Jesus loves you absolutely and unconditionally. Will you receive that today? Let's pray. God, thank you for this love story that we're going to meditate on over the next uh, several weeks together. And so it's fitting that we get to come to this communion table as a community this morning and receive uh, a love offering from you for us. Um, Your body broken, your blood poured out, symbols of your death and then your resurrection. Um, Your life alive in ours. It's got to open our hearts to receive from you what you have for us, this message of profound love. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.